Hello, and welcome to the Co-Production Podcast. This is Noreen from the Co-Production Network for Wales. What you're about to hear is a recording of a conversation that I've had today with Rachel Thompson from Swansea University, describing a project that she's run this year in the past months. Rachel is a research associate in information governance and public involvement in the Department of Population Data Science at Swansea University Medical School. The project that she's been working on is called Wales Citizen Engagement with Responses to COVID-19, which is, as she describes it, a very broad working title for a project that was quite open-ended, deliberately so, given the changing context, and uh, made of multiple parts. Um, the part that we've been talking about and uh, hearing about in terms of Rachel's um, thinking and approach and the experience of running it was the engagement that happened online with members of the public around attitudes to uh, the Track and Trace app. You will hear that in the conversation, there's a couple more other people. Um, there, you will hear Lindsay's voice, who's a colleague of Rachel's, and Aj, who's a um, colleague from a different university, from University of Birmingham. Um, Aj left at one point, as you will hear, because he had to go and teach. And um, a, little, a bit later on in the episode, we uh, we paused it to have a, a big brainstorm about what we were saying and then resumed and Lindsay had to leave in that gap. So uh, her vo you will notice her voice will be absent in the last little bit. Um, she had to go and pick up her car. This is a long episode. There was a lot to unpack and lots of questions and I could have carried on and on, but we uh, ran to one hour and 40 minutes, which is pretty long. So uh, put your feet up, grab yourself a good cup of tea or take this with you on a walk, on a run, on a drive, because there's a lot to it and we hope you enjoy it. We certainly hoped talking about it and unpacking it. And I'm sure Rachel will be back for future episodes. I want to start by thanking everybody who contributed and who continues to contribute to the work. We often leave acknowledgements to the end, but I think it's important up front to uh, say that no, none of this happens, no research happens uh, without the people who are involved, by which, of course, I mean the, the members of the public um, as much as the fantastic facilitators. Um, also acknowledging Noreen's input um, as we ran a workshop to design the online deliberations, uh, which Noreen facilitated for us and was incredibly helpful. Uh, and we're still using learnings from that, so thank you very much. Um, this is not offered as an exemplar of co-production or indeed anything else. Um, so <laughs> just to put that out there, um, what it is is an exploration and some personal reflections um, of what was really a sort of fairly experimental hybrid approach to both deliberation and to engaging with publics in real time about the biggest global health crisis of any of our lives. Um, I don't think I need to give you wider context to the work. I feel like we're all familiar with why we might want to talk to people about policy responses to COVID-19 
let me know if anyone's not sure why that is. Um, <laughs> I'd be very jealous of you if you, were, if you didn't know why. Um, so the aim of the game was to facilitate deliberation um, and wider discussions that use deliberative principles in real time, in inverted commas. So to support members of the public in Wales in learning more deeply about gaming information and in um, creating a cohesive group to be able to really have some deep discussions and, as I said, deliberations about existing and proposed policy responses to COVID. So I'll give you a little bit of the sort of history of how we came uh, to be in the room. I'm going to say in the room, the Zoom room, um, <laughs> uh, just because I think that some of the fluidity and the rapidity um, is kind of really, it was very influential um, slash quite challenging. Um, <laughs> Lindsay remembers um, in the ways that we, we, felt that we could design things, that we could um, involve the group members in that design and in the way that we ended up delivering and what our focuses ended up being because there were a lot of changes along the way. Uh, as well as deliberating, we also aimed to just provide a space for, for expression, um, for some sort of um, communing, actually. Uh, and, and group experience and for learning because one of the benefits um, I'm jumping ahead slightly but you know one of one of the known benefits of taking part in you know discursive based research generally and deliberation more specifically uh, stated by many many people in many different contexts is that they get access to information that they feel they perhaps wouldn't ordinarily um, We'll talk a little bit more about that kind of down the way because I think that's a really that was a really key uh, benefit for people. So um, how we came to the work that we did was, of course, uh, as I sort of slightly facetiously alluded to a moment ago, um, the COVID nineteen pandemic. This work has its origins back in sort of March April when um, international working group convened, um, not global. Uh, primarily Global North, unfortunately, but that's what it was, um, to of, of a huge range of uh, experts across a range of disciplines, lots of political scientists and people who are experts in deliberation, experts in facilitation, some quite um, significant uh, meetings and, and sort of uh, contributions to immediate learning were made. Uh, and then we move to, OK, well, what can we practically do to respond to this lack of engagement, consultation, um, listening <laughs> to publics uh, about decisions that were being made at state and regional level right across the world? Um, at that time, the focus for COVID responses was Europe and shifting to the states. Um, I know it seems like a terribly long time ago I had to go back and, and look at notes to think right what where was the focus at that time um, and so myself and uh, my my boss Karina Jones in, in population data science and a couple of others um, I know in in the sort of facilitation world thought well you know what how can we best 
um, hear the Welsh public and what would be the most important uh, topics for them to be heard about. So we ran a survey, which is something I never thought I'd find myself doing, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> and we, we, we ran a sort of high-level views-based survey uh, for Wales that was facilitated through Healthwise Wales, who I also acknowledge and thank for their, their support and their work. Um, uh, that went out to about 4,500 people out of a cohort of 36,000, I think. Um, it wasn't random. They were deliberately selected to not just represent uh, across a range of protected characteristics, but they were it was a deliberate oversampling in certain characteristics, um, not all. Uh, and we wanted to reflect not just who is in Wales, but who was being potentially most adversely affected by COVID at that point. Uh, and also recognise who is very seldom heard. Um, so to do that, we oversampled for, um, for example, age group, uh, disability declaration, etc. Um, okay, so the, the, the survey ran, it had a huge response very quickly, and we had two aims with that. We wanted to, first of all, kind of take the temperature in Wales with, of course, all of the caveats about um, not claiming full representation and the fact that people who are on the Healthwise Wales website have self-selected already in some way because they presented themselves as people who are willing to take part in health research. So, uh, I could, we could do another whole hour just on that. Let's let's not let's move on. Um, so, <laughs> there's a very ranty paper coming about that fairly shortly. Um, so, um, and the other aim was to use it as a tool to quickly access a subsection of the public and get their views on not only what they think about a contact tracing app, because sorry, that was the focus of the survey, but also key what were the policy responses and other elements in the response to COVID that they felt they were not being heard about and we asked them so we did pre-select a range because in a survey it would have been very difficult to have you know everything open we had some open responses which I think was really important um, but we also pre-selected seven or eight different topic areas and asked them to rank them in order of importance the choice of those topic areas itself came out of um, quite a lot of consultation with a range of different community groups, researchers, um, you know, other, other stakeholders or potential stakeholders. So it was, certainly wasn't just pulled out of a hat. There was an element of co-design of the survey. It was also piloted by a range of different people across Wales, including a learning disabilities group and also a, a women's um, uh, asylum seeker and refugee group. Um, so the whole time, what I was trying to do with the survey was, of course, ask good questions, get out to people who we don't always hear from and who are being most affected. Offer people an opportunity to identify themselves as someone who would be willing to engage in further work. Um, respect, you know, the severity and the overwhelm and, you know, all of the sort of potential re-traumering 
you know, that, that could happen when you ask questions of, of this nature. Um, so the whole time we were shifting and editing and, you know, uh, trying to remain flexible, once the survey had actually gone out, the ways that we did that were to go into the data in a, in a range of different ways. Um, I can talk to anyone that would like to about the, the techniques and the analysis that we did, but that's sort of not the focus of today. Um, and so we also reported back to Welsh Government and to Public Health Wales uh, on the survey. And again, this was about rapidity. It was about taking the temperature. It was about very quickly um, giving people a channel to government and to be heard. And then we took the prioritised topics and used those to help design the online deliberative discussions. Um, and then we worked with co-production network, so Noreen, to, um, to design the sessions uh, and think about making them as open and um, human, frankly, as, as possible. Um, one of the other things I think that's really important and not necessarily co-productive, but I think it speaks to those principles, and that's certainly the spirit in which it was done, um, is that we front-ended um, a lot of uh, time and support for contributors. So once people had identified themselves as being interested, we had about 120 out of 1,100 who said, yes, I'd like to do something else. Um, I contacted everybody um, by email. And side note, the mail merge didn't work. I had to do it individually. <laughs> Just, <laughs> that was a fun couple of days. Um, so <laughs> because I'm not ever sending someone a dear sir. So obviously, yeah. Anyway, um, there we go. There's a, there's a personal reflection <laughs> for me. Um, and then about 30 people came back to us and said... Yes. Okay. Let's have a conversation, um, which then went down again. And again, you always expect quite a reasonable amount of attrition, particularly because of what we were asking them to do, which I will now briefly talk about. Um, so the front ending was that everybody who was potentially going to take part uh, had a sort of 20 minute to half hour conversation with me where they could ask absolutely anything. Obviously, I, we took them through the consent uh, process, having um, previously gained ethical approval, of course, through the medical school, which is a whole process in itself, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, <laughs> uh, and we actually ended up being one of the reasons we were significantly delayed, but we'll, we'll come to that later. Um, so everyone got this sort of quite detailed time and we had certain things that we needed to achieve, but... So, i.e. consent if that's what was going to happen but I also wanted it to be uh, an open space for them to express any worries ask any questions understand that um, they were expert enough because that comes up a lot um, that they didn't need to be qualified experienced you know etc um, that all of their needs would be responded to uh, insofar as we could you know all of that kind of stuff which might sound basic and normal and I really hope it is whenever I have these conversations I want people to be like well duh that's like what we always do but I'm look at Noreen's face but I'm super aware 
though that is not the case. Um, we also had a couple of people for whom English was not their first language, so making sure that, you know, that was catered for and also um, making sure that we thought about the Welsh, um, as in the language, not just the people. <laughs> so... Um, yeah. What did you do for people whose first language wasn't English? How did you support them? First language not English. Um, only one person expressed it as a concern. Um, it, it was obviously the case for more than one person. One of them was totally fluent and very confident. And, you know, I said to them, you know, do you require anything? Because you never want to patronise someone about their language ability. Um, but they were like totally fine and just said, no, I'll let you know if there's an issue. I think there was maybe like one word that they asked me about or something. Because again, obviously we've gone very much for plain language, right? Um, and then the other person was a little bit worried about um, not their understanding, but their being understood. Okay. Because they have um, a pretty strong accent. And their, also their connection wasn't great. So, um, and I think possibly they knew that. So, yeah, there was just a little bit of a little bit of worry around that. So, essentially, uh, it was just to reassure that um, it was our job to hear them, right? That's um, well, <laughs> um, and uh, not to put that responsibility onto the members of the public in the group individually. Had there been an issue there, you know, Lindsay, myself, one of the other facilitators would have, um, you know, had to sort of manage that. And we did, because we were recording the sessions as well, I sort of had in the back of my head, it's not perfect, but we could, you know, offer that uh, as an opportunity, a transcript if people needed it. We didn't caption uh, because I tested the caption facility on Zoom and I'm sure you've tried it and it just, it doesn't, good yeah it's not great especially if somebody you know uh, has any kind of accent um, or speech impediment or anything like that and it barely picks me up that's probably none of these things pick me up (laughs) yeah yeah it's probably an english design lens yeah (laughs) and i'm not in that box (laughs) (laughs) it's just being anti-welsh that's what it is (laughs) um so yeah does that answer the the question yeah um yeah and it kind of leads me on to some of the challenges that we experienced afterwards as well in terms of uh, assumptions that were made about language and citizenship and Anyway, um, we will get to that. Um, So, uh, yeah, so all of that, and I apologise if I'm spending a lot of time on the prep, but I think a lot of the kind of the interesting stuff was in how we designed and went about. Um, And uh, and the amount of effort and time and working with people who weren't even going to be you know, part of those groups to understand how best to support people, um, how we could work with, for example, the digital inclusion challenge, right? Um, You know, this piece of work was, or this aspect of the work was online. It was on Zoom. We chose to use Zoom, for example, because everyone's heard of it. Mm -hmm. I looked at other platforms. Yes, there was also a cost element, um, but also we had people in the group who had never, ever, ever done a video call before. 
So using something that even just had that name recognition, it just took out a layer of anxiety um, and gave them a layer of comfort. And I mean, that's all we're ever trying to do, isn't it? When we're getting groups of people together, right? Um, so all of these things that we wouldn't necessarily, I mean, you do think about them, obviously, don't you, when you facilitate in real life? But they may not be the same specific things, but they're coming from the same place. Um, so that... Uh, application of the principles of support and facilitation and respect and inclusion but having to be done in in a bit of a different way which I'm sure is a reflection of many many people who've now done this work but you know back in in the survey ran at the end of May and we were hoping when did we do the workshop with you I'm sorry I forgot to check the date June May June I would have to check. It would be one of them, either May or June. Yeah, yeah, it was around that time. Um, and, you know, we were very much kind of raring to go and hoping to, to do that in June while we were still in lockdown, as, a, as a, basically across the UK. Um, and first of all, because we wanted this to be a rapid response. Because, and I should have said this at the beginning, I apologise, this piece of work is research, but it was also um, a response to policy and all of those things I said about um, facilitating voice and, and, and being heard. So the rapidity was not really about the research. It was about the, um, in an ideal world, speaking truth to power, essentially, uh, and exploring the ways in which a shift online could not only enable a fairly rapid gathering of people in different places in a time when no one was allowed to go near each other, um, but also enable us to do the work online and analyse it, everything kind of be electronic based and therefore able to kind of produce a product and get that to government, you know, PDQ. Um, and the research element uh and this is the thing I really had to like kind of fight for a bit in the university, which is fine. The research element was very much secondary, which is obviously quite a hard thing to uh, sell to a research department. Um, <laughs> but uh, so when I talk about hybrid, I'm kind of using that in a multi-layered sense because I'm talking about hybrid in terms of we did, um, you know, this online discussion but we also had phone calls but we also had paper-based stuff but we also had a survey uh, but I'm also talking about responding to decision makers and aiming to have the public be involved with and influence and maybe change uh, or certainly be heard decisions and policies in real time and then wrapping around all of that is this, um, I've been struggling for a phrase, to be honest, but I'm going to use participant observation because in obviously academic circles, that's some, the phrase that is understood. Um, because 
really the separation between facilitator and uh, and I realised I've just moved straight on to kind of challenges etc. But um, really the separation between facilitator and contributor was much more blurred, I think, than in other contexts. Because when else has something so affecting, so um, stressing, so dividing, and yet so uniting in different ways occurred in any of our lifetimes? And then we've come together in a group and we are researchers and contributors and we are absolutely explicitly respecting, valuing um, experiential lived expertise, experience. But there's still that kind of people have different roles with different names. You know, there's different power in the room, um, still being led predominantly by one person, you know, all of that stuff. But yet we are also all members of public, people who live in communities and people who are experiencing the COVID-19 outbreak. So for me, that was a really sort of fundamental um, difference in terms of the experience of it of it all. And that really coloured, I think, um, not really how it was sort of designed and happened, but how it felt as a process. Uh, and I think it also was important that we were we were really open about that. Right, Linz? We like one of the things that we did right the way through was always be we. Yeah. We were always we. And not in a kind of fluffy, you know, <laughs> way, which I know is sometimes an accusation of, of this sort of work, but I mean it just there was no other option, right? There is no other option because to do this ethically and well and respectfully, you know, you have to um, create cohesion and you have to create a sense of community, which is obviously a huge challenge for doing online. But also because of what I was just saying about this shared and yet very different experience. Yeah. Right? Um, So... That was really, really important, really influential. And I think even subconsciously um, had quite an impact uh, on everybody's understanding. Like I feel like people were obviously keen to be there. They were being, I should have said as well, they were paid for their time. Um, And again, explicitly to respect their value, their expertise, the fact that we were all doing this work, um, you know, and um, again, naivety on my part, I just kind of assumed that that was the way that uh, (laughs) people went about things. It turned out, no, no, it was not. so I think people really appreciated that. Nobody was doing it for the money, but they certainly appreciated it. And, and the way that we spoke about that very openly as well. Um, and we did communicate with them about um, the use of their time, how they were paid, how much they were paid, all that kind of thing, in terms of values and respect. Um, 
and that seemed to be something that people uh you know very much appreciated um so all of that is i guess color um layers and like i say it wraps around with this kind of shared but different experience the fact that we were all in our own homes as well right so you're not only getting a group of strangers together because they weren't a group they were total strangers to each other they'd all met me um a couple of them had met each other because in the front ending that i was just talking about uh or front loading sorry uh I ran four, I think, or five hours of Zoom calls, um, which were absolutely tech support if that's what was needed. And some people really did need that. And I don't think would have, um, you know, been able to take part without it because, like I said, I've never seen before. And it was really kind of, you know, step by step. Um, but for others, it was just a chance to get comfy um, and to ask questions about process and content and, and whatever else. Um, and it was really nice because people did come across each other. And some of the last minute sort of tweaks that we made came out of those conversations. So taking it back to co-production, again, that to me was another method by which we were able to include contributors in some of the, the design of what happened. Um, so we did all of that and then we had three three-hour sessions they were two and a half hours because we had a half hour break um, and obviously people were free to come and go as they wished they're all adults um, and we ran those over uh, about a week and a half and we also had a one-hour consolidation session at the end because the aim of this was to move people through intake of information um, and also the creation of community and the cohesion work and, um, you know, those exercises that we all uh, try to bring people into a room with, um, which I think people engaged with very well, actually, didn't they, Lindsay? Yeah, they, it, that group that came together, they worked really, really well together, considering that they'd never met one another. We, we were in a virtual space, which was really odd for all of us. But I think it was that we were there for a common reason, weren't we? We were there for that singular sort of fight in a way, isn't it? So we all came together and it was brilliant. Yeah, everybody put a huge amount of effort into it. And I was really surprised. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, it, it's absolutely true. Um, and it's because the shift, and of course it's never linear, but the aim anyway of the shift was to go from intaking of information. So we had three expert speakers um, and they also, I gave them a resource pack before every session. Uh, and, you know, this was a range of, and again, I'm happy to share materials with any, anyone at all. Um, you know, I didn't sort of create most of them. So they had a, a, a little very short PowerPoint with things to think about, um, you know, an agenda for the day and then also a reflection to take away from the session and sometimes that reflection like I changed it by the end of the session because something else came out of their conversations so again just trying to be really reflexive and responsive um as far as we can be because of course if you're all in a room together you can you probably go to a whiteboard or a scribe or something you know it just it, it's more tactile and it kind of feels easier um 
so yes another way to kind of again in real time be reflective be responsive and, and uh just really benefit from from what was coming out of these conversations so we did a lot of work about cohesion and, and and group we were very relaxed in the first session about um you know attempting to be deliberative um we just people just you know spoke to each other and we uh tried out some conversations about how data should and shouldn't be used and COVID, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, we had Natalie Banner from Understanding Patient Data, which most of you have met or be aware of. Um, and Natalie did a fantastic talk, just giving them an overview of uh, how patient data is used in general, what some of the sort of legalities and regulatory uh, things are, and also... Um, bit of an overview of ethics but in a very applied context context-based way and um, they responded brilliantly to that uh and so yeah. we had their sort of first um i was going to say attempt it wasn't an attempt it was great um, their first sort of uh opportunity for to discuss in groups followed that talk they then uh between sessions we gave them not homework but reflection and I asked them to reflect, um, yes, on some of the things that came out of the sessions, some stuff that we pre-designed. But importantly, I think, we left it completely up to them how they wanted to do that. Now, some people responded to that um, creatively. Other people found that was the choice was too difficult and they wanted more guidance. So I think we sort of hoped that by offering lots of not even offering options like we literally just said do what you would like to um but then for people who had never engaged in any kind of reflective exercise before that was quite um quite challenging it was a little bit overwhelming I think so it did offer some suggestions and pretty much everything we got back was one of those suggestions so I think that doing some more work about how people reflect and how we support that would be incredibly useful. Um, yeah. Right? Because I think it was just a new concept to a lot of people. Yeah. Right? Like you could immediately tell the pe there's a couple of people who've um, worked in the NHS and they were like, yeah, got it. No worries. Because as Ash can tell us, if you've done any clinical training, like you reflect until you go yeah. blue in the face, right? <laughs> like it's just such a huge part of it. So anyone who's a clinician is like, yeah, sure. Um, but so that's that's an important thing for, for us to kind of work on in the future. But what came out of the reflection, you know, some of it was fantastic. You know, I got a couple of pages in a Word document. Someone else did a, a yeah, someone else um, gave us a video diary, um someone else gave me an audio recording uh somebody else said they were doing because again I'd said like literally photograph paint I mean it, whatever it comes from you it's about you just express um and somebody else I haven't got it yet but I'm told it, it, it's still coming um <laughs> uh someone else has said that they've done a sort of I think it's like a collage um wow painted thing 
that's really yeah. awesome good right I mean a lot of people you know there were 15 sorry I've missed the boring numbers bits there were 15 people 16 originally we lost one person um she's fine that sounded terrible yeah Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've actually spoken to her since she's definitely fine um one person had to withdraw just for work commitments not a problem um uh but yeah so 15 people went through the whole uh, of the process and I think four or five uh, that's a huge number though because walking away from a session and doing that reflective work if especially if you've never done it before but in essence it was independent work it was entirely up to you if you did it wasn't it you could just attend the sessions and just walk away and that's it but no that's brilliant that those people have actually gone to that much effort to absolutely. Like, yeah absolutely and they all they all did the kind of more homework type stuff as well, right? So um, you probably, you'll remember, you know, some of the resources we gave them, um, and again, it was always a suggestion and never, ever a mandate, of course, um, were things like uh, recordings of parliamentary committees. So I provided a transcript. I mean, not the whole, I sat through the whole three hours, didn't make them sit through the whole three hours and took sections. Um, They had like a, I think one was 20 minutes and one was like, 40 minutes and you know I'd, I'd said to them when I sent them out the longer one pop it on in the car pop it on when you take the dog for a walk you know I kind of wanted to give them like little podcast type like things um and they they pretty much all did engage with those resources um that's brilliant and you can see it in the transcripts because they're referring directly yeah. to that stuff um I mean this is I guess uh very ad hoc but i actually again personal reflections i got apologetic emails from people who hadn't been able to use the resources it's just like guys it's fine thank you but to me that was i sincerely hope not because they felt it was a mandate i mean we were that was never the intention that was never the language but it doesn't mean that's not what they heard because I'm very aware that there is an inferred hierarchy in these situations, even when you try very hard not to have one. Um, so it's possible that for some people, particularly those who were used to mm, working under instruction, yeah, right, that I think we might have we might have had one or two people who it was that sort of inferred hierarchy thing, right. Um, and you could sort of see that in the way that they responded to other members of the group. Yeah. So I take that, and that's, again, something for me and us to think about. Yeah. And and work on, right? Yeah, Um, definitely. So that's really, really valuable learning. But I think for a lot of people, they were just really keen. And, you know, one of the things that Lindsay's touched upon already, you know, this was... Well, by the time we ended up doing it, it was the end of July. But people had, many people had already done the survey, so they'd sort of had some peripheral engagement and contribution with this, um, thinking and discussing about the potential app from kind of May, end of May. And then by the end of July, we were, you know, predominantly moving out of lockdown, which is another reason why I think we had such a drop-off rate. Yeah. Because... People the shift in mentality. 
yeah, they could go outside and do stuff. Like, had we done this when we originally wanted to, I do think we'd have had higher numbers. Because people were not completely over Zoom. They weren't um, able to go and do other things, which sounds awful, like captive audience. But I mean, that first extended period of lockdown was the definition of a captive audience. (laughs) I mean, you know, like we didn't create it, but we wanted to make the best of it. Um, And that also takes me back again to what I said about a space to express. Because again, because of lockdown, I think that was just even more important. You know, some people just don't have that space, even if they're with their friends and families, they hadn't, and I know this because they told me, as well as thinking it would be true in general, they just didn't have that opportunity to ask questions and to have some kind of deep discussion about what was going on. Um, So that just became even more valuable. But yeah, so I think that's the reason numbers dropped off. And also just kind of pandemic fatigue. Yeah, so which, uh, oh God, let's please someone, if I talk about this more than five minutes, someone stop me. Um, So pandemic fatigue, super interesting, absolutely embedded in privilege um, because you can only get sick of something if you have another option. That's a strong statement. It's not, I haven't phrased it brilliantly. What I mean is you can only choose to not talk about something because you're sick of it if you have another option. So in the same way that um, all the people who put their black squares up and then did absolutely nothing, um, uh, you know, can do that because they are not the people who are harmed by racism, uh that's a much stronger case but to me this was kind of similar like you can choose to turn off the news and not ever think about COVID-19 if you are in a safe secure environment with access to food and you're employed and no one you love is sick you can kind of opt out to, to a pretty great extent actually when you're not in lockdown so I'm not at all saying that's what this, these people are doing. This is a bit of a tangent, I apologise. But it just, it, for me, it really, that really made me think about that and think about um, this phrase, pandemic fatigue, because it did get used. Um, and that's time, fine, and I understand it. It's absolutely, the whole thing is exhausting for everybody. But it just made me think about, yeah, to, re- to reflect on the diversity or lack of it and who was in the room in a slightly different way and to think about, um, the digital inclusion challenge in a slightly different way and the way that we had or predominantly I had um, understood people's reasoning for be there and their ability to be there their mental and emotional capacity to take part because people who were you know fighting every day and not the people that we see in these in this research you know they're, they're, they're just not there were absolutely people who had um you know I'm not at all saying that everybody had sort of a really cushy time whatsoever uh, and we supported this work by um working with a learning disability group uh for example we, we weren't able to run um or to support discussions and deliberations with the asylum seeker and refugee group which was their choice um 
we did offer uh, to a range of people you know we can provide you with resource packs and you can have kitchen table conversations and you know you you tell us what you need from us to have these deliberative discussions and we will within reason make that happen but the reason for, uh, I know they don't want me saying this, the reason for that particular group, and obviously I'm not going to disclose the location, um, deciding not to was they just were, they felt it was important. They absolutely expressed um, interest in being heard about the particular risks of a contact tracing app, um, the risks of at the time, you know, there was talk about it being geolocation, et cetera, um, you know, these very very vulnerable women um sorry women who are vulnerable because of their circumstances um yeah. were you know really really keen to contribute and very sad that they couldn't but it just came down to we don't know if we're going to eat tomorrow that's fair enough yeah. which is the single most awful but that's valid true. reason very yeah to not take part in something right um so we took that kind of as far as we could and um again that's another area of really really important uh, improvement and learning for us um in that we need to do better obviously (laughs) i mean that goes without saying but also spend some time really working with uh, that community in particular to how to do better what that looks yeah. like and what they need from us right yeah. um the learning disability group um have had a conversation amongst themselves but in a in a much more limited way than than they hoped because jumping on zoom is not an option so um they had a sort of a round robin conversation and they used um a, a paper form if you like that everybody added to um you know that yeah. game I mean it's not this at all but you know that game where you write a line and that someone else writes a line and yeah. yeah so um their peer supporter sort of described it to me a little bit like that which I thought was absolutely brilliant um <laughs> but uh which, and I apologise if this is all a bit, a bit over the place, but I'm just, um, you're inspiring me to think of different things. Um, so, so that's great. And that's kind of, that was always going to take a long time. Um, and it was never going to be deliberative in the traditional sense. And, but it, it, it very much co-produced, you know, uh, the peer supporter and the members of that group said, no, we're not doing any of that. This is how we want to do it. Fair enough. Went, okay, cool. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. And we did the same thing for the survey. Um, and of course, it has come to light since that learning disability um, groups, I'm tired, sorry, you know what I mean, um, have been massively disproportionately affected in COVID 19. So, yeah. uh, that again is another aspect of our community that we do not engage with well nope. across the board in research, unless it's research about having a learning disability, right? Yep. And the same accusation can be thrown at a range of other protected characteristics as we all know very, very well. Yep. Um, so again, that's another area for learning, for reflection that we hope to work more closely in future now that we've opened that conversation 
And we've hopefully demonstrated um, a level of trustworthiness uh, and, and, and listening, which for me is, um, is a win, right? Um, yeah. Which is not a particularly academic way to put it, but um, <laughs> that's, you know. And again, one of the um, strongest reflections that came from them was, you know, yes, we want to do this survey and yes, we want to have a conversation and yes, we need to do it in our own particular way, but you are going to help us do that. Yeah. Which I really appreciated. Yeah. You know, and they were, they were pretty angry and I get it. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, they weren't angry to me, but you know, you could, you could really hear their sense of being heard. Yeah. 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 And particularly because this was during lockdown and you know some of the the people in that group and I apologize because these are the people who did not actually come into the group that Lindsay and I facilitated but I think it's directly relevant um you know some of the the people in in that particular support group you know they had been summarily kind of dismissed from their normal living situation right so people who were in shared accommodations kind of got if they had a home to go to got like sent home so all of a sudden were cut off from their you know from their yeah home. yeah um and so again another kind of layer of of importance and value Rachel, there was your conversation good. around where do you want to go where do you yeah. feel safest yeah uh, yeah so Just, i'm so glad that that group were willing to and happy to engage and contribute their opinions that's absolutely brilliant yeah and we'll do you know and we'll 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 do it better in, yeah. in the future but this right. is our first step to learn from isn't it yeah yeah so um apologies because i know this is like a lot <laughs> i haven't even got to the end of the sessions but i think hopefully you can tell that and this is not just about like, ooh, what I think, but that it was such a rich experience on so many levels. Not completely, you know, successful, whatever that even means, um, but uh, incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. um, and I think really valuable for everyone that took part as well. Um, that's that's the reflection that, that we got back. And I mean, I had some negative feedback as well and some quite strong, constructive uh, feedback. I mean, some of it was generally constructive. Some of it was, yeah. Um, but, and, and one of the really interesting things about the feedback and the way that came is we had the reflections between sessions. We had the reflections afterwards. We had, everybody um, had access to a phone number, which I had the phone. Um, and we opened that, like I went and bought the phone especially, again, realising that we were all in different spaces. So the people didn't always have to email or use Zoom or whatever, and they could have a voice conversation if they wanted to. Um, we had WhatsApp messages, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, and made it very clear that they had access to all of that after the project finished. You know, which again, I think is fairly basic, but perhaps not always the case um particularly when you're asking people to talk about the experiences that they are living through right now because even when something doesn't seem on the surface to be sensitive or you know trauma or, or whatever we don't know yet or we didn't know then 
right, what the aftermath of those experiences were going to be because they were happening right then. So people had not had the opportunity to process. And I think that was another reason why people were as engaged as they were. They were kind of working some stuff out. Um, You know, it definitely wasn't therapy, but if it also had a, a, a small kind of pressure valve effect and that's that's great too um so yeah just wanted to be right from the outset and again have all of this in place before we even started to make sure that people didn't have to ask you know they didn't have to identify themselves as having struggled or um needing extra support or anything like that like we just gave them the welfare information for the university which i know isn't you know perfect but it's it's what we had um and made sure that they knew that that we were contactable and still are now and will continue to be so you know as far as i'm concerned if something comes up in six months time out of that work like we're here you know um and again i think that's particular to i think it should always be the case when you're talking about sensitive and important things but it's particularly heightened in this experience um, can somebody somebody else like to ask a question or say something sorry because I'll be here for like forever I apologize <laughs> sorry to sorry to put in um, I've got to go and teach but okay. oh, uh, wonderful to meet you. so far lovely if I get the chance I'll, um, yeah lovely to meet you Paul and um, well to you before <laughs> yeah, <to> you. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is about as much as we <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, well, um, and, um, have, yeah, have, hopefully have, I can get time to, to get back. Yeah, that would be great. Do come back if you can. Okay. Thank, Thank you. Thanks, Bye. Bye. Um, I have questions. Please. In case that's helpful. Um, yeah, the, one of the, one of my questions, which you've already partly responded to, was, you know, what sort of feedback uh, did you get? And, and so you've mentioned some of it, you know, constructive, less constructive, positive, all that kind of thing. Um, my thinking was, you know, the, the route that you, the approach that you took um, is really different. It's really based in support and inclusion and respect. You know, it's really rooted in that, which is unusual for projects of this kind, especially who that are trying to be done at speed. So quite often, you know, the real... Um, you know, that, that wrapping it around the person is often the first thing to go when mm-hmm. we don't have time yeah. to do things. So yeah. I guess I'm bringing a huge bias to this question. Because I was going to say, you know, did people appreciate that? But then my other voice in my head is saying, well, would they know any different? You know, yeah. if that's the main experience that they have, they might not notice and, and you know, make a point of mentioning it because for them it might be just the way things happen. Yeah. Which should be. I mean, yeah, all, all of that. So I think I think that I think that's all true in different ways. And Lindsay, please please jump in. But um, I think uh, there was there was one person who explicitly uh, mentioned and thanked actually, which is obviously not something we were seeking um, us for the way that we went about things. Um, do you remember that? You might not remember. Liz. I've obviously I've, I've been in these transcripts for like. <laughs> Like I know these, I could pretty much recite them. So, <laughs> um, which is a slightly sad indictment of my life, but that's fine. Um, and that person um, made the point because he he was reflecting on having had other 
experiences as a contributor to research um, where people had not been. And his particular thing was about the transparency uh, and the way that we talked about the process and about being in it together and and it being, um, you know, this kind of response to policy and research and being very clear that there was no um, uh, sort of pass-fail in terms of a research aim, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And that we were absolutely going to co-create Oh, I'm going to say outputs. <laughs> outputs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Give me a different word. Um, so that we're going to co-create outputs, but the, also the co-creation of that would be limited. And again, I think, you know, it, the fact that we weren't making huge claims. You have to be realistic and, yeah. Yeah. Um, Manage but, expectation, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And try and exceed them always. But um but I don't know. To me, yeah, it was just it was so interesting that that um that people were sort of or one person in particular, although there was someone else mentioned something similar, was sort of struck by the fact that we were just very straightforward about look, you know, we'll be we'll we're gonna or you rather, we're we're going to support you in coming to a set of recommendations that will then be passed to um, you know, policy uh, makers and will also inform academic writing. Um, and then we're also going to do these sort of forms of analysis. Um, and I sent quite a long email uh, several weeks after the, the work, just with an update of, you know, what had gone where and what we were doing. And some of it they'd seen because they'd contributed to it. Um, but what am I trying to say? That, that we were just very straightforward that, look, you know, what you do is completely fundamental and will be a part of everything that comes out of this. Some of it you will directly be a part of creating the the actual document. Um, Some of it, not necessarily. You're all very welcome to contribute to everything. But again, there's no expectation. Because again, you know, the the other side of that is it can feel like pressure. Uh, Yeah. Um, and I did have someone say to me, oh, you know, I'm not very good with words and oh, I'm dyslexic and I'm this and that. And I I don't really, oh, but, oh, I'm not sure about if I've got to do writing. And I was like, oh, no, no. So, again, that was a really good point for, for, for me because it was me that had explained it, that enthusiasm can come over as pressure, right? Yeah. It becomes overwhelming and then all of a sudden you've got disengagement then, isn't it? Exactly. So, but what I was very grateful for, um, so there's a lot of I in this, I apologise, it is very much we, but obviously it's me talking yeah, about you will lead it. to me, yeah. um, was what I was very grateful for at the time and still am, is that they felt able to say that. Yeah. That's good. And they didn't just leave. Yeah. So that is, I'm claiming no credit for that. It's just a thought about, you know, that person's character but hopefully also a little bit about the space that we'd helped to create as a group and the experiences yeah. that we were having together. And one thing I didn't mention when I was saying we had these three sessions is we also had um, two or three social hours um, in between sessions and they were agenda free, which again, point of learning, some people were like, oh, but if there's no agenda, what will we talk about? And there was a little bit of social anxiety, I think, right? Right. So agenda free, but needs definition, needs to set an expectation. Right. So then another time, I think I'll like, I don't know, set a topic or something or give a poem to read or I don't know, something 
right? Um, people who came were like, great, and really got to know each other a little bit differently. Um, I obviously hosted each of those sessions. So, um, again, that was a, 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 a choice. I mean, someone had to. Um, and I did say, I think I hosted the first session and stuck around and we had a lovely chat and there was like four of us. And then the second one, I thought, well, you know, I could just open the meeting and then go. Mm. But it's, uh, it seemed to work quite well that I would ask them things and kind of get them flowing. Yeah. going. Um, and also again going back to this thing about us all being part of the we I sort of undenied really about this separation and joining thing because with the social stuff had I just opened the meeting and left Mm. and that would have been offering them an opportunity to just be together and, and spend some time but it would have also said to them whether they registered it or not I am different from you. I am not part of this experience. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So I think both ways are valid, which is a problem of this sort of stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it's a problem and a blessing. It depends. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. What's the right thing to do? Well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes I think this is all. Yeah, I think sometimes you've just got to write context and kind of walk away. <laughs> like just, you know. Um so yeah, but those those social hours and it was funny because I didn't that that was, you know, something that we wanted to try and and I know that it's not something that anyone involved in the work had done before, whether they were a staff member or um a member of the public contributor. And I did a quick sort of look for how is that done and there just weren't very many examples like there's more in real life um but I just I I, to me it was like okay well we'll just see if it works or not we'll see who turns up who doesn't and again it was about this creating a space for expression respecting people's time offering something back because I don't know what people's living situations are so actually, if somebody lives by themselves and they're, and maybe they're also a bit nervous about their participation, if they're able to then come and hang out for a bit, that could have a number of, of benefits. But then also there was this perhaps other subgroup of people who were just a little bit like all unstructured or I'm not very comfy with that. So, yeah. yeah. So I think overall it was a good idea. I think I would do it again. The feedback was good. Um, very much kind of ended up being a self-selection of the people who felt comfortable and confident doing it. Okay. Right? But so then again, another point of learning is how do we, you know, uh, offer an opportunity that is in a soft way um, that's respectful of people's privacy as well. They might just not want to talk to us after they've spent three hours doing it. Um, uh, and these socials were on different days to the sessions uh-huh. deliberately um, and sort of early evening slightly different times but but early evening and said you know bring a cup of tea bring a glass of wine tell us what you've been doing in the day yeah, whatever um, yeah and there's slightly self-indulgent personal note I got to hear some fantastic travel stories like 
get a bit of a sense of who people were when they're not talking about COVID and data and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, so I think that was a good idea. I think uh, lots to be done around how to just sort of map that a bit better. And, uh, but I think it's an innovation I would, I would do again. What, was it, it might not have been, but was it noticeable whether the people who came to the socials, did, did it change or improve or affect their interactions in the group? Did it have the impact that you were hoping it would have in terms of group cohesion? Good question. Um, when I was thinking about why did, why did you think socials were a good idea? Um, primarily it was about offering a social space and a, a bit of a sort of, I don't know, reward or, or whatever. Um, a cohesion thing, yes, it was absolutely about that. Um, had I thought about how to measure that? Honestly, no. Not in any kind of way that I could go, oh, yes, this metric or whatever. Um, did it have an impact uh, in terms of just what was observable? Um this is where the researcher brain comes in. Hard to say without a control group. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> but as a person interacting with other people, did, yeah. it, did it, I, with the caveat that there's lots of factors in people's lives and so on, but did they seem, did it look like it helped? Um, it certainly didn't. Go on. I wasn't in the social, so I'm completely unaware of who yeah, was in who was the there social. And who yeah. yeah, and I wouldn't be able to tell if there were certain people who had been together in a social sector, in a social meeting okay. that had like formulated a closer bond or something like that, because yeah. the group just worked so fluidly together anyway. Yeah, I was unable to tell a difference as the sessions went on. Yeah. No, that's really interesting because even though I was looking for, is there a positive as in people are a bit more confident, or a bit more comfortable? Yeah. The, the positive you've just highlighted by not noticing is that they didn't make a clique of That's people exactly who what, yeah. had done yeah. just the social end, which is also great. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. another reason why I ran um, multiple sessions, uh, so hoping that we get different people, and we did. So oh, great. Okay. Oh, okay. Yep. Time. Sorry. Yeah, no, because you're right. Clique is not at all the thing. Um, I think that um, there was... There was really, really good uh, cohesion just because of, not just, but for a number of reasons. One, we worked really hard at the, at the front of this, really hard, um, to make sure that we didn't kind of just do some icebreakers or whatever, but that it was kind of quite meaningful interaction and that they got to um, try out discussing with each other, right, as part of that cohesion exercise. Yeah. Um, and that they, they all had a new experience together in the first session which was the speaker. I mean, they were all having the new experience of all being in the session, <laughs> but um, they had a shared new experience that was also not just new to them, but unique to them. Yeah. Right? So no one outside of that group was getting that. Um, so that was, you know, a conscious uh, thing. And again, you know, there's reams written about how to kind of cohere <laughs> a group. So, um but yeah, so so that was that, and 
uh, running the different socials and, and being very pleased that it wasn't the same people every time. And that thing that I was just saying about the self-selection of who attended social sessions might be part of the reason, as well as just the good cohesion, that Lindsay didn't see a difference, is that those people would have been chatty and confident anyway. Okay, yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, the cause and effect might be working the other way around. Yeah, because if we go, if we only got the people who felt comfortable coming along to a session where they didn't know who was going to be there. Yeah. Right? So it might be a continuation of that. Um, I did get a couple of people again, kind of like, oh, I'd have loved to have come to social, but I was busy. I've got this on, you know, and again, that's a function of coming out of lockdown. Yeah. So not only, I think, would we have had more people in general, but I think we'd have had greater engagement within the group with the reflection and the um, and the social interaction. Yeah. Um, because it was just at that time where people were finally able to go yeah. to I'm the park, to the cafe, yeah. to see their friends, yeah. whatever. So that definitely came over in the sort we of... We to help both to come in. <laughs> 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 so that's that's a, a slightly depressing thought in terms of wider you know not this piece of work but other piece of work is like most of the time we're not operating in a lockdown so actually it's going to be hard <laughs> to get people well and it's funny because yeah um i always kind of think that's yeah it's, it's it was just just strange moment in that we were talking about uh, uses of data in the response to COVID and the reason I completely overlooked saying here that we broadened out to that from just a focus on the app was because of the things that shifted and changed <laughs> many many things and of course you know the, the period leading up to the survey and beyond it, the news the kind of regulation the news that everything was almost hourly wasn't it, it was certainly daily yeah. um, and then the app was just a proposal when we were composing the survey and doing all the work about understanding from groups kind of what that might look like. Uh, then it went to trial on the Isle of Man. But by the time, and it was really close, again, I should have checked the date, sorry, but very close to um, seeking the ethical approval for the online work, uh, the Isle of Man tra- uh, trial got dropped. Right. <laughs> so then, so, so you were in a very fluid context and trying to uh, yeah, 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 absolutely find yeah, people's absolutely. opinions of things that were changing daily, which doesn't yeah. help you plan your intervention essentially. No, and it yeah. also, you know, is hugely challenging for quality and inclusion and you know all that kind of stuff. So, um, and the reason it mattered that the the the, 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 the trial was dropped, obviously, it matters anyway, but because they hadn't then announced what was going to happen instead. So that period of time, it was like, right, NHSX app, which I'd spent weeks, if not months, you know, keeping on top of all the uh, data and whatever about, um, isn't happening, fine. But all they'd said about a new app was there might be something and it'll be later in the year. So then we had to make a very quick decision, and this was not co-produced, then we had to make a very quick decision about do we pivot, do we not? If we do, what do we go to? Well, obviously, we go to yeah. the other topics prioritised by the members of the public. 
right? Um, and one of the sort of strongest themes, absolutely, that came out of the, the survey questions was about uses of data. Um, not just the collection and storage of it for track and trace, although, yes, of course, that was a theme. And in the open responses, you know, there was a lot of talk because, again, the timing. When the survey was happening, it was all about the app, all about track and trace, all about the fact that there wasn't any testing happening. So you can really see that in the open responses. Slight side note, but also very interesting was the weekend that the survey, the survey went out on the Friday and it was that weekend, I think, or the weekend previous, really close, that What's-His-Face went to Durham, Barnard Castle. <laughs> and you can see it. You can see it in the survey responses. It's explicit. Really interesting how these, you know, and again, other people have talked and written about this, but how these singular, you know, on the surface, not that big events had a huge impact on trust, trustworthiness, perception of credibility, well, not just perception, credibility, perception of competence, you know, and and to have that happening in the middle of the pandemic, while they're trying to sort an app out, while they're trying to sort trust and trace out, while we're asking questions about all of these things, and then bringing it back to this specific process to kind of have all of that and then pull out what people aren't being heard about and what they want to be heard about. Because, you know, there's a, there was a, a lot of choice. <laughs> there was a lot of choice. Um, and so the broader data work we ended up with, because A, mostly, importantly, it was really important to people. Like, it was a strong theme in the, in the survey. Uh-huh. Also, we know that it is a massive area of discussion because Lindsay, Kamina and myself work in a population data department uh, we have a consumer panel that Lindsay uh, looks after brilliantly and we just know it's a massive topic. Yeah. Um, from Natalie Banner, understanding patient data, we know that it's a huge topic across the NHS uh, and the wider social care world. Um, everyone knows what the GDPR is, but they don't really know what it does. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. Um, so we decided, yeah, that's the way to go. And also it's kind of fairly a broad wrapper to then drill down into some more detailed thinking. So when you're wanting people to work towards deliberation and work towards consensus, but not unanimity, unanimity happens, great, but that's not the aim. That's not the aim. Exactly. And even in consensus, you know, traditional, which is not what this was, uh, deliberation is predicated on rationality. It's predicated on the ability to engage in discourse in particular ways. So we definitely were like, we're going to take the useful parts and we're not going to, you know. Um, and um, you move towards an endpoint of consensus and producing usually recommendations, uh, which is exactly what we tried to do. But again, we're very explicit about this is not a pass-fail. If you disagree, that is equally as valid. You need to justify it, though. And that's the difference between a focus group, uh, well, it's not the only one, between a focus group um, and a deliberative piece of work is it's about this shift. Um, It isn't about debate. Uh, It is about um, bringing evidence and information and justifying answers and pulling things apart as a group to get to the root of something to then 
come back together and uh, create a, a recommendation. That's a very kind of surface description, but that's you know, a functional difference. Um, and we could do another three hours just on deliberation, but trying to do that online with a group of people you've never met before is another layer of difficulty on top of like all of this other stuff. So we very much said, you know, this is deliberative discussion. So we make deliberation. Sense. Yeah, so because what we didn't want was for people to be scared of terms um, or for any of us to feel like if we didn't achieve like this idealised form of deliberation, that it somehow wasn't valuable or worth it, which because it's not true. Um, and interestingly, one of the pieces of work that's come out of all of this is a collaborative uh, paper with an interdisciplinary group who are based in Scotland, England and Wales. And the two cases in the paper are this project and one that's been run by Traverse using a bespoke engagement platform and obviously experienced deliberative facilitators. Um, and it's not a comparison, but we're just using them as two examples of relatively rapid, deliberative, online response to governmental decisions in the pandemic. Um, and so we're doing quantitative an analysis. Again, never thought I'd see the day. Um, <laughs> using the modified um, discourse quality index framework uh, and coding the transcripts for yeah the quality of the interaction okay and how deliberative or not it is and how well justified statements are and how respectful not just of the points but of the people each speech act us so it's a very interesting approach it's used widely in political science um and we're working through both cases in that manner and that paper will be about how do people talk about the pandemic during the pandemic wow and can you meaningfully and quickly deliberate online? So that's what really that's interesting. Yeah. It is. And then the other analytical or you know, research uh, side of things is a, a qualitative analysis, analyses actually, of um, one for content and one for process. And so this is obviously a, a long, slow, <laughs> um, very detailed sort of series of pieces of work. Um, but what there will be is there'll be, there will, they will be published academically. They'll have to be. Uh -huh. um, but there will also be, and there already are, uh, public facing outputs as well. So there's stuff on the HWW website. Uh, there will be a blog or that sort of, thing and I'd like to also then come back to the contributors once we've got the analysis actually done mm. and say right what other ways do you want this work out there yeah I really like that I was going to ask about your ongoing relationship with them and you know so this is just open-ended I yeah I mean as far mm. as I'm concerned it is and they all said um yes absolutely still contact me you know all that kind of thing um the fly in that particular ointment um was the payment process 
which has been nothing short of a nightmare and a totally avoidable nightmare. And I won't go into detail because it wouldn't be fair um, to some of the individuals involved. But overall, um, I think it's worth I think it's worth talking about. And I raised it in the in the UCL co-production collective meeting this morning because it was a triumph of systems over people, Mm. which is the literal opposite of the basis of co-production. Right. (laughs) you know um and it's also pretty antithetical to the principles of deliberation as well so um so yeah so basically what ended up happening was um and i and i do strongly also think there's an ethical uh component to this as well because um you know we had detailed ethical approval it was a you know big document long process we got asked questions we got challenged on things quite rightly you know, we went back, we gave them all the information, what people were going to be paid, how they were going to be paid, and the rationale for being being paid was clearly documented, went through an approval process, lovely, off we go. And then it turned out that um, actually there wasn't a system to pay them. Um, big, our biggest limitation, sorry, actually, I think, was resource. It was time and people. It wasn't money wasn't equipment wasn't that it was time and people um but that's okay because you know it was it was an experiment and we were learning all these things and that's great and I wouldn't say that the contributors necessarily would have thought that because they wouldn't know that there was all these other stuff things that you know you potentially wanted to do um so but yeah so the reason I'm sort of quite passionate about this payment thing is what I've already said but also no a rec a, a, a research ethics committee isn't a finance committee but if your payment method and rationale is in your ethical approval because it's been asked for and you have been given approval for that to then turn and, and also sorry it's in the participant information sheet and it's part of the consent process and so people have agreed to do a thing on the basis of the information that they have been given and discussed with, and you've had all these lovely conversations about, and then the institution, and I fully appreciate it's not just ours, um, the institution then puts in a new obstacle or a new requirement that the contributor has absolutely no idea about and sure as hell has not consented to, then to me, there's more at stake there, even than the stuff that I've already highlighted. I think that's a, an unethical way to go about things. And I think it's a reputational risk to the institution as well. In a number of ways, which I will refrain from elaborating, but I'm sure we can all think of. Um, so to me, actually, it's not, it's, it's more serious even than it took ages to get them paid. I think it speaks to a fundamental lack of understanding about the relationships involved in this kind of research and the damage that can be done even after everything has gone you know we've both said kind of fairly positively and people you know said oh yes we'll still engage um I obviously was being chased by participants for are we getting paid what's happening blah 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 and I wasn't able to give them an answer so on a personal level obviously that's frustrating and embarrassing and whatever else but it's also the role of the person, which in this case was me, who's had the most contact. Like, of course, they're going to come to me. They absolutely should. Mm. 
Uh-huh. And of course, I'm going to have to just take it on the chin when people get, you know, pissed off. Like it's not, it's not okay for me to then complain to them, make excuses, whatever. I have to, just have to be the face of the institution. So that's fine. However, another reflection is that when we think about risk and ethics and what we do in research, hey, hi, Maxon. Hello. Um, when we think about risk and ethics, etc., is risk to researcher, right? Yes. And in, in non-research co-production contexts, we talk about how the organisation needs to be geared to support the people working right. on the front line, having the interaction so that they can make the right decisions in the right moment and that they have that backing from the organisation. Yeah. I mean, exactly the same principle, for sure, yeah. Um, so uh, I guess what I'm trying to point to is, for me, this is a series of sort of failings in a system or a lack of a system. And um, I think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a problem, like I say, that speaks to a number of other things and attitudes and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the thing about the risk to the person who is sort of, you know, frontline or whatever. Now, m- me as me, I can deal with that and I did, but it shouldn't be down to the character of the person involved ever. Yeah. Right? That's been a good point. It just shouldn't. Um, so <laughs> yeah I think it's a, it's a point that I haven't heard articulated yet until now um, what we often uh, highlight and uh, in, in point out in conversations is co-production tends to happen because there's a dedicated passionate person who believes it's the right thing to do who takes it upon themselves to do it to do the right thing that they believe in and driven by values mm-hmm. um and until you just said that just now we never talk about the weight that that puts or that they take upon the on their shoulders to be dealing with a system that's not favorable to that way of working and to be putting their own resilience and their own fortitude on the line to make this happen. Mm. I think it's, um, for me, it's analogous to um, forms of activism, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in, in the way that, you know, that that one person who is willing to stand up and be, not, not just one person, and I'm not at all making an analogy between like me and that person, but just more no, it's okay. situation. Um, you know, that one uh, person, um, you know, that one, that one black female academic, because let's face it, there very often is only one um, at a university um, who, you know, is expected to take upon all of that burden. And, you know, there's a very well rehearsed, um, uh, set of issues but I, I do think that there is some analogy there um, because what if what what you're doing goes against the grain yeah that's it and you're experiencing pushback and you're trying to protect other people from that then you can end up in a very difficult mm. which, which is why the co-production network exists actually because oh, that yes. won't come from within your organisation until all of our organisations collectively have changed and and evolved in in our different environments to operate in but we can find that support outside through the community of practice which is why why it's important that it it exists no for sure but I think it's um it just really made me think about that um place of vulnerability for 
you know, the engagement officer, the researcher, the, whoever it is, you know, wider than this project. Yeah. And how actually, and I can only really speak to academia at this point in my life, although as you know, I've been in, in third sector work as well. Um, and I think that there is a real kind of lack of that. When you say, Lynn's like you're dealing with members of the community all, I know it's slightly off topic, but you're members of the community all the time. You're often their first point of contact, most often. Um, and you're also the person that gets it in the neck if they don't like something and things go wrong and, you know, yep. and there's, you know, there's other more subtle things as well, aren't there? So. Yeah. Uh, I'm the person who gets it in the neck, but I may not be the responsible party, but yeah, I am the face, yeah. the public face for the university in that particular circumstance. So yeah, yeah. I just have to try and mediate between the two and um, yeah, take responsibility basically, isn't yeah. it? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And that's, I hope, you know, that's certainly what I was sort of trying to express, but yeah, but it, again, it shouldn't be down to how broad that one person's shoulders are. No. And that's, you know, something that I already thought and I fought hard for in other organisations, but I hadn't necessarily thought about it in the research context that much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you tend to only sort of hear it in, you know, um, risky research situations. Yeah. Field work and, yeah. you know, lab work and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that a lot of the social science type stuff, it gets a bit, lost and I'm, yeah. I'm putting I shouldn't have said social science with a massive heading over like the whole range of, of different things um so so that came out of uh, of all of that what we actually ended up doing um and probably don't put this in the recording um is um, should I pause the recording now yeah <laughs> <laughs> seriously should I actually yeah, interrupt it yeah. okay hang on we'll have to make some kind of transition because I'm going to do very minimal editing so um for the purpose of the listeners who are checking in with this at later date I'm going to pause we're going to have some free uh spoken thoughts and then we're going to summarize in a in a um publicly acceptable way when we come back so um for everybody listening no time has passed but in the meantime while the pause button was on um we had a, a big ranty get off our chests um uh, the the injustice and the unfairness of um when systems are geared towards systems um and is real you know computer says no situation and completely putting that over and above the the quality of the interaction and and, and people's experience so um sometimes um doing co-production well can have its very challenging and frustrating moments and so sometimes you need to get things off your chest um but two two big points uh, come out for me out of this is um that one you know as a as the facilitators in the the point of contact and the person holding the space and curating the space and, and this experience for people, you feel really protective of them because you build, you know, through that interaction, you build a relationship with them, you care. And so it matters to you that, you know, you're fighting on their behalf to get their experience to be good and for their rights to be respected and all of that to happen. Um, and I'd like to um, finish because we're nearly at time, but on that note that we don't often talk very much and, and maybe that's something that's that 
we can talk more about generally as a co-production community, but of the negative impact, the detrimental impact on people's lives and experience and, and the traumatise, the, the trauma actually that could be associated with, you know, doing the complete opposite of co-production, mm-hmm. trying to grind people into the boxes of a system when actually it's not life enhancing, it's not supportive, it's not putting people at the centre and actually what damage do we do to people when that's happening? And that's kind of the history of of um, dehumanizing (laughs) (laughs) services and and the reason why co-production is important is worth saying you know if we don't do co-production we're creating even more damage no for sure and I think a a sort of a a subtle or related uh, sub point to that um, is what happens when uh, perhaps an experience, you know, has gone well. You've had that reflection back from people, and um, it has been positive, and maybe some aims have been achieved. And, you know, all, all round, everybody's sort of uh, got something from it, and it's been quite rich and, and valuable. And then something happens, or a series of things happen, or don't happen. Yeah. But, you know, so yes, you've got the times where it doesn't happen properly, or you know, things go wrong, or people, you know, have bad experiences, and we need to absolutely be thinking about that more and and working through that and improving it but also when you've got a kind of good thing that goes bad mm-hmm. which is a bit of a different situation it is and I don't know how much it, maybe it's an unusual one I don't know and I'm not making the claim that that's what happened with our project because it's not at all what happened but just um it was something I started to think about with with some of the post-op processes uh so not that we can cater for every single eventuality but those are two sets of circumstances that have and will come up. And yeah, a bit of bit of thinking about that kind of more deeply, I think would be really, really, really valuable. Definitely. So Yeah. It's that it's that pattern of we never do a task and finish co-production project, do we? We're yeah. building a co-production relationship. Yeah. So even if we finish our piece of work, whether it's us or whether it's another part of our organisation, there will be an interaction with people. And yeah. how do we keep building that that relationship over time rather than, OK, thanks, bye, and then disappearing out of their lives forever? Exactly. And so, you know, this the case that I've been talking about today, um, you know, we are, we're not in regular communication right now. They are like my you know door is always open electronically um and on the phone they've got a phone number for me and you know all that kind of thing um which I know sounds like a silly thing to say but when you're at home and not in your office like we had to make that happen so mm-hmm. and it was specifically for that project um and they will always you know be always really pleased to hear them and actually people have funnily enough contacted um myself and I think one of the other facilitators about um things that were related to the topics that they discussed but were not about the research so I've actually had several emails going oh have you seen this in the news or you know oh here's a here's an article that relates to that thing we talked about on this day so so lovely yeah so I think that's 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 really good um and but the 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 post-hoc problems the system-led stuff I genuinely believe, in fact, I know in a couple of cases in particular, has damaged that relationship that we all worked really hard um, and really, and we all really valued. I'm not saying it's destroyed it, it hasn't, but it's no. definitely, you know, but it's a shame. had an impact and it's a shame. And, um, and I think the failure to understand the consequences um, of things that happen 
are done by or not done by people who are not directly involved in the project. I think that's really key. Yeah, because we operate in large systems and large organisations and there's lots of moving parts yeah, so we that think have an influence about, on what we're doing. Yeah, and we think a lot about, you know, the restrictions of funders and how difficult it is to get buy-in and, and all of that's totally true and valid and, and very challenging. But I suppose I certainly haven't thought so much about how those systems and institutions and stuff can have an impact afterwards, good or bad, mm. you know, on the continuing relationship. So anyway, um, I hope that that was of interest and use. That was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel. Uh, Rachel Thompson from um, Swansea University, a school of... Medicine? Oh. Yes, School of Medicine. <laughs> It's a short version. <laughs> just, yes, I just let Rachel get it right rather than mangle it. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you once again. Um, I will, uh, yeah, that's it. I, um, my brain suddenly went, you need to think of something clever to sign off. And I can't. So I'm just going to sign off and say thank you very much and press the stop recording button. Absolutely. Rachel. And just to say that if anybody would like any resources, further information, um, links to papers, whatever um then uh, i'm very happy for my email to be shared and um to continue any any and all conversations that's, ah thank you so much absolutely great we've all got lots to learn from each other haven't we so so contact uh contact us at the co-production network and we'll put you in touch with rachel thank you for the offer much appreciated members right. supporting members that's what we're about absolutely yeah okay. thank you <laughs>